Hey there, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to E Pluribus Unum, a podcast trying to bring some Torah, Bible, wisdom back into the world so that we can make this world a better place, the kind of place that we all say we want it to be. Well, if we say we want it to be a certain way, then we have to act a certain way to make it that way. And that is why I am here. This is all a conversation between me and you, lovely listener, because we're all working through things together. None of us is perfect. None of us has all of the answers, but hopefully together we can all get better and discover a whole lot of the answers. We have something to celebrate. I officially have 1,000 downloads of the podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Those of you who have contributed to that number, it feels like a milestone. Not quite up to the Adam Carolla number of downloads quite yet, but at some point he had to have only a thousand, right? Anyway, I'm very happy about that. Thank you all so much for being here. I'm glad you're here. If you are enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you share the podcast with your friends and family, anyone you think would appreciate the podcast, would learn, would have an open mind about it, leave a rating and a review, and also make sure to subscribe. And if you're on Instagram or Facebook, follow me at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. I'm also on Parlor, same thing, at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. I would love to see you there and converse with you there. If you have any questions, any topics you'd like me to cover, let me know. The topics for this podcast come from a variety of places. They'll come sometimes when I'm learning the weekly Torah portion. They'll come from conversations with family, things I've seen on TV. This week's episode is brought to you, or the idea for it, came from a book I was reading. So I'm in the middle of a Jody Picot book. It's called A Spark of Light. I love reading Jody Picot's books, and I hope I'm saying her last name right. I'm pretty sure it's Picot. Pico? P-I-C-O-U-L-T is how it's spelled. She's a great writer. Her plots are compelling. Her characters are well-rounded. They feel like real people. Her books end well, but they don't tie up neatly in a bow. They end satisfactorily from a reader's perspective, but they're not necessarily clean, happy endings. Her books make you think. Her books are engrossing. She does all the things a good author should do. I love reading her books. In a lot of her books, she tackles tricky subjects. I read one recently that tackled euthanasia. There's adultery in several of her books. So she's not afraid to write about a whole host of topics. And she usually handles the topics with a very deft hand, presenting characters on both sides of an issue who have real feelings and real thoughts and complex feelings and complex thoughts about any particular issue. So I usually love reading her books. This one, A Spark of Light, was about abortion, and I didn't know it when I got the book out of the library. I was looking for a new book to read. I saw her name, and I know I love her, so I just took the book out. Once I got a few pages in and realized what was happening, I was hesitant because Jody Picot is a Democrat, at least I assume so based upon some of the very overt things that she's written in some of her books. But like I said, she presents characters who have multiple points of view and are multifaceted. So even though it was about abortion, I know that she handles topics very tenderly. 
So I was willing to give it a try. And of course, I was pulled right into the story because she creates amazing stories and situations. However, I got about a third of the way in and I read a passage that was so troubling that I had to stop because it was making my heart pound and making me anxious. Do you get that feeling? Like when you get riled up about a topic, creates a physical reaction, and I just couldn't continue reading. And I have not yet continued reading. I haven't yet decided if I'm going to or not. But I have to read you this passage. I can't just describe it because it won't do it justice and it won't facilitate a good conversation. So I'm going to read this to you. It's about a page and a half. And then I'm going to share with you some of my thoughts on it. So this is from A Spark of Light by Jody Picot. I would think that when it comes to abortion, race is the last thing on anyone's mind. Dr. Ward glanced up, surprised. Why, Miss Izzy, when it comes to abortion, race is first and foremost in everyone's minds. He nodded toward Janine. She's the anomaly, you know. The average anti-choice protester is, he lowered his voice, a middle-aged Caucasian male. Izzy looked at George Goddard. He was polishing the shaft of his gun with the hem of his shirt. They'd heard him talk about his daughter. They knew he had some personal connection to this clinic, but surely that wasn't true of every protester who fit that profile. Why? Because they're trying to make America white again. But more women of color have abortions than white women doesn't matter. They don't care about the fertility of black women. They're using them, the way black women have been used for centuries to further a white agenda. You've seen those black genocide billboards? Izzy had. They sprouted on the highways in the Deep South. They showed a picture of a beautiful little black baby and a slogan, the most dangerous place for an African-American is in the womb. A picture of President Obama and the words, every 21 minutes, our next potential leader is aborted. White people are the ones who put those up. Race isn't exactly a walk in the park in this country, Dr. Ward said. If the antis frame their opposition to choice as anti-racism, it looks like they're trying to help black women. But a law that keeps black women from having abortions also keeps white women from having them. The only person who can give birth to a white baby is a white woman. Those same white women are working outside the home and bucking traditional family values, and by 2050, whites will be in the minority. When you look at it like that, it's a little clearer who those billboards are really benefiting. That's the end of the quote. So, a lot to say on that, and I will get to all of it. I do want to point out when this book was written. It's from 2018. Um, she capitalizes the word black. She also used the term anti-racism, which I had never heard until this past year, you know, with all the writing, the Black Lives Matter stuff, etc. But she uses it here. I mean, in theory, the idea of anti-racism, but as an actual term, I hadn't heard it until this past year. So interesting that in this book from 2018, it already exists. When I first started reading this passage, when I was reading the book, I was turned off, but then she almost changed my mind because she had the female character say, but more women of color have abortions than white women. So I thought that she was going to give this viewpoint two sides, but she doesn't because at the end of the passage, the woman agrees with the doctor and says, I've never thought of that before. She'd never thought of it that way, but now that the doctor pointed it out, she has seen the light. If I thought this was just Jodi Picot's opinion, something she had made up out of thin air, fine. I would just go on and I would read the book and I'd say, Jodi Picot, think your mind's a little bit frazzled, but you write incredible books and we'll move on to the rest of the story. The story is set in an abortion clinic where a man has taken the people there hostage because his daughter had just had an abortion there and he's in a, in a state, to say the least. 
But I don't think she's making this up. I think this is a real opinion that people actually have. I don't know that for sure. It's just the feeling I get from the way that she writes. Because I know the way she writes, there's someone else earlier in the book who brings up the fact that Roe from Roe v. Wade actually became pro-life and changed her mind after the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. So she presents real life arguments through the mouths of her characters, which is why I assume this is a real argument. And that is why I had to talk about it. Now, look, it is 100% possible that there is a huge conspiracy of white people to be anti-abortion because they just want to have more white babies. It's possible, just like any secret conspiracy of anything is possible. So even if the millions of people who are pro-life aren't part of that conspiracy, could they be manipulated by the, you know, 200 who are are running everything? I guess potentially, because I guess that's how conspiracies and secret societies work, right? That there's a small number of people secretly puppeteering everyone and we don't know that we're being puppeteered. For instance, I don't generally support abortion, which I'll get into a little bit later in the episode, but I don't generally support abortion. And I do think that it's, and I do think that it's disproportionately harmful to black communities, but it has nothing to do with race. But who knows, maybe all the pro-life things that I read are written by people who are secretly part of this conspiracy. I don't know, it's possible. But is it likely? I think it's about as likely as Elvis still being alive. It's just Technically, yes. Could he have faked his death? Yeah, I guess. Is it likely? No, probably not. Now, to be fair, this idea that there is a conspiracy on the part of white people to harm the black community is sort of how some people on the right and some pro-lifers talk about abortion when they talk about the fact that it does disproportionately affect black families, that a black child is more likely to be aborted than a white child. I don't know that there's necessarily a conspiracy theory there. I think those are just facts. And I don't know that people on the right necessarily imply that it's like a secret racist tactic on the part of people who support abortion. I think they just point A to B. More black babies are aborted than white babies. This is troubling for the black community and for the people who support it that they might have some, if not latent racist tendencies, then the sort of soft racism of low expectations, which I think is the quote. So it, it could be something along those lines that there's, that from the right, they also sort of say it about the left, that it's a racist conspiracy. But basically, I don't think abortion is a racist conspiracy. Now, at the beginning, with Planned Parenthood and Margaret Singer, who was a racist, yeah, she was trying to get rid of non-whites, Blacks, Hispanic, Native Americans. That was particular. But today, I don't know. I think people who are pro-life are pro-life because they're pro-life. And people who are pro-abortion are pro-abortion because they're pro-abortion or they're pro-women's health or women's rights or whatever nice sounding thing they like to couch the killing of babies in. I will get to abortion at the end. But the reason this paragraph struck me was not so much about the abortion topic, but because of the mental gymnastics necessary to think that this conspiracy theory exists. Okay, so 
I'll break down the theory for you again. Most pro-life supporters are white males. By the way, I did some research. More men are pro-life than women. It's close, but it is more men. And the difference between white people and the difference between white European people generally and non-white people is close. I couldn't find specifically for white males, but I'm going to assume that what she said in the book is true or is at least based on something real. Fine. Well, I'll take it at face value for the sake of talking about the subject. So the idea is that the reason white males are pro-life is because they want white women stuck at home having babies because they don't like that women are outside the home and they want more white people born. So to ensure that more white people are born, they won't allow abortions because allowing abortions means that both white women and black women can get abortions. They couch it in race to get more people on their side, but they don't actually care about black people having babies. They just care about white people having more babies. And if I've confused you, good, because that's the point, because that is ludicrous. Doesn't it sound ludicrous to you? First of all, I feel like if someone is a real racist, they would be very happy about the fact that abortions disproportionately affect people of color and therefore would be pro-abortion. I don't know for sure. That would just be my guess of how a racist person thinks. But that's so convoluted and it ascribes to people such a sinister and brilliant intelligence. It's sort of like the same way that people think that Jews are part of some sort of massive global conspiracy. In a way, (laughs) it's flattering because people think that we're so brilliant and so intelligent and so clever that we can come up with this conspiracy that spans generations and spans countries so that we're pulling all the strings. Thank you for thinking that I'm that brilliant, but actually I'm not. When I say these things, it's because I believe them. And I feel like that's the same thing here. The idea that there's some massive white conspiracy, massive white male conspiracy to have more white babies born is in a way like uber flattering to white males. But also, I feel like people on the left don't understand how little people on the right think of race. Like people on the left think of everything in terms of race. So they assume that we do too. But like the idea that there's some massive gathering of white people making this happen assumes that like white people all hang out because we're all white. If that happened, there would not be such a divide in this country because there are white people on the right and white people on the left who virulently hate each other and are so angry with each other. If we had like racial solidarity, we'd be this huge monolith all getting along, but we don't. And I think I mentioned in a previous episode that I was going to refrain from using the term white and use European instead. I do prefer the term European. I think white is stupid and meaningless. But for the purposes of this discussion, since that was the term used in the book and black and people of color was the term used in the book, and those are the terms we're all familiar with, I'm using it today, but in general, European. But she was talking about white male, so I'm sticking with that. So this idea that there's some sort of mass conspiracy and having to work your mind to create this conspiracy, it's because you can only create this conspiracy if you see the world through a particular lens. If your lens is pro-life people are bad, then you will see their motives as bad. 
And when they're coming to protest at an abortion clinic, then, and when they come to an abortion clinic with signs that say, don't get an abortion, so many black babies are killed, or don't get an abortion, it will be sad for you, or whatever. Their signs say, if you think they're bad, you have to see what they're doing through a lens, and your lens will allow you to warp and distort and come up with this crazy conspiracy theory. And it is a conspiracy theory. But if we see the world through a lens of other people are good, then when they do something good, we have to assume their motives are good too. So when we see a pro-lifer at an abortion clinic protesting, then we think they're protesting because they are pro-life and they think that it is murder. How we view the world and how we view other people is a choice. We can choose to have a distorted lens, or we can choose to have a positive lens. Ultimately, we can never know what's in another person's heart. Sometimes we don't even know why we're making the choices we make, let alone someone else. So all we can do is go based on their actions. When it comes to our relationship with God, our motives matter. Because God knows why we're doing something. He knows why we're doing something for him. And he wants us to do things for him with love. He wants us to do things towards other people with love and graciousness and generosity and not not begrudgingly. But in our relationships with other people, ultimately all they're going to see is our actions. We can give charity begrudgingly or we can give charity happily. But the person who's getting the $100 has received $100 either way. Yes, is it better if we also smile at them while we give it? Absolutely, we can always be better, for sure. But the point is that we don't know what is going on in other people's minds. But if we want to go through life, assuming everyone else is a villain and looking at them through this awful lens, then then we can do this too. Then we can twist people's motives into some sort of stupid, crazy conspiracy theory or something evil That's one of the things that bothers me the most as a conservative is headlines and stories that say that conservatives hate children because we don't support free school lunches or that we hate brown people, which is such a dumb thing, but that we hate brown people because we don't support illegal immigration or that we hate women because we don't like abortion. What if you actually listen to what I say my reasons are? and believe that I'm saying those reasons and not lying to you. Is it possible that actually I'm not against brown people, I'm just against illegal immigration because it's illegal and I don't support people breaking a law? Is that possible? Is it possible that I'm not against women when I say that I'm against abortion, but I'm against the act of killing an innocent child? Like, it so bothers me. I think this really bothers me more than anything else, that... People twist conservatives' motives and beliefs. You don't have to like what I do or how I do it. But if I'm telling you a reason, don't don't say I'm lying. Give me the benefit of the doubt. At the very least, I do it. I 100% think that most people on the left, when they, when people I work with say that they're anti-racist, I 100% believe them. I think they really do have the best interest of black people in their hearts. When people say that they are pro-abortion because they care so much about a woman's right to choose and a woman's right to have control over her own health, I believe that those are their reasons. I might believe that the implementation of their ideas would actually lead to the opposite of what they believe. I might think they're misguided, but 
I believe that they actually believe that way. And I just wish the same courtesy would be extended to me. Because how are we going to have a conversation if you look at me and immediately think that I'm a villain because everything I say you're putting through your distorted lens, it's not going to happen. I could say, I love you, you're beautiful. And you're going to say, ah, you're saying that because last year I weighed 100 pounds and I lost weight. So you're really making a dig at the fact that I wasn't always beautiful. I mean, if you want to see the world in a certain way, you can twist anything you want to. It's actually very creative. But what if we just take things at face value? Because that's all we know. We can't see into a person's heart. We don't know exactly all their thoughts and feelings. Let's just try it that way. Look, it's obviously not working the way we've been doing it. So let's try it that way and see what happens. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it won't make things better. But I feel like it will. And again, we haven't been doing that. So let's try it and see what happens, shall we? I said I would get to abortion because... I think we might have talked about it before, but you really can't talk too much about big topics, you know? And since it was brought up in the book, I think it's important to talk about again. And now, of course, it's been on my mind because I did read the book, which maybe I'll give it another try. I don't know. Follow me on Instagram. I'll let you know if I finish the book. So abortion. I go back and forth. I don't toggle totally to each side, but I end up somewhere in the middle. By the way, is that allowed these days? Are we allowed to not 100% have answers for everything? Are we allowed to be questioning? I feel like we have to firmly entrench ourselves in these camps. I am pro-life. I am pro-abortion. I am pro-gay marriage. I'm whatever. Sometimes we're humans and we have questions. And and I think it's okay to change one's mind. I don't think it's flip-flopping. If it's genuine, if it's just for political posturing, but that's politicians. But us as regular people... New circumstances change our minds about things, new experiences, new insights, age, all these things. So I definitely lean more pro-life, but maybe not as hard and fast as some Christians. And that might partially be because Judaism does take a different view to abortion than Catholicism. For one thing, Judaism does allow abortion when it comes to the physical health of the mother. If the life of the mother is at risk, an abortion is definitely allowed. There are some Jewish authorities that also allow for abortion if the mother's mental health is at stake. I find that to be a little bit troubling, and I don't think I would support a ruling in that way. But some authorities do equate mental health to physical health in that sense. So Judaism is already more open-minded than some parts of Christianity in that way. There's also a very interesting law in Leviticus that indicates to us the status of a fetus. So in Leviticus, there's this law that if two men are fighting and one of them punches a pregnant woman and the baby dies, he's not guilty of murder, which is an indication that a fetus is not accorded quite the same status as a human. In fact, a baby is not really considered a full human until 30 days of life. Now, that is not to say that one can go around killing babies either, It's just that from a Torahic perspective, a life is not established until 30 days. And I haven't found proof of this reason, but it would seem to me that in days of yore, the first 30 days for a baby, really the first two years, but certainly the first 30 days were treacherous. There were so many more pitfalls and illnesses that could take a child so young. So after 30 days was an indication that this kid is here to stay. Now, I don't know if that's true or if that's 
the only reason why. But I know there are some cultures that wouldn't even name children until one or two years because it was so fraught for babies in ye olden times. So if the guy punches the pregnant woman and the baby dies, it's not murder. He does pay a fine, but it's not murder. Now, we have to remember that murder has both a legal and a moral meaning. In legal terms, right, that's why there are different kinds of murder. There's first-degree murder, there's manslaughter, because planning out and plotting to kill someone is very different from accidentally hitting someone with a car, right? These are two different things. So that's murder from a legal perspective. From a moral perspective, it's somewhat similar in that the premeditation matters, but killing someone has to be punished. From a moral perspective, killing someone from a Torah perspective, killing someone has to be punished whether it is purposeful or accidental. Killing demands justice because taking another person's life is is one of the worst things that we can do as a human. It just is. Whether we do it on purpose or accidentally, it's one of the worst things we can do. It's one of the Ten Commandments, not to murder. So in Judaism, there's a Torah law that these cities of refuge are set up for manslaughterers. So for the person who accidentally hit someone with their car or who has dug a pit that someone trips in and dies, there were these cities of refuge to which a person basically self-exiled, and they were there until the tenure of the high priest ended, until the high priest died. So if the high priest died that year, the person was there for a year. If the high priest died 30 years later, then the person had to live in the city of refuge for 30 years. If they left the city of refuge, their blood was essentially forfeit, and the family of the person they killed could exact retribution on them. Now, we have to remember that this was a different society in a different time where people did kill in revenge. But we also have to remember that the Torah is a guidebook for what it expects from us, not just how it specifically wants us to live. So the Torah, God gave us laws for those times because people lived in a certain time and culture, but also rules for how we should live our lives. So the idea of a city of refuge, even though technically if someone left, their life was forfeit, knowing that there even was a city of refuge is God's way of telling us not to exact revenge on someone who commits manslaughter because it's an accident and we should not be vengeful in that situation. So there's purposeful malice aforethought murder and there's accidental killing. Either way, there should be, there has to be some sort of punishment to the person who commits it because it is the worst thing we can do, whether it's living in a city of refuge or capital punishment in the case of premeditated murder, taking a life can't be minimized, which is why in that recent case in Minnesota where the police officer accidentally shot a man instead of tased him, that was an accident, but she still took a life and there should still be some form of punishment different from first degree murder. Absolutely. But some form of punishment, whatever that looks like within the justice system, because she took a life? Absolutely. Anyway, so that's all about murder, which is all to say that from a Jewish perspective, abortion is not murder. But just because something is murder doesn't mean that it's okay. Manslaughter is not murder, but it's still something, obviously, that is not okay, that 
has to be punished and dealt with in a particular way. So coming back to my personal view of abortion, do I think it's murder? I don't know. When it's a baby that could live outside of the womb if it were taken out in whatever medical way, possibly. When it's still an embryo and not yet a fetus, I just learned today, or maybe I learned in ninth grade health class and completely forgot that an embryo is a different stage than a fetus. So when it's still an embryo, or when it's like, you know, within the first couple weeks, is that murder? Probably not. Is it good? Probably also not. Is that better than having an abortion at eight months? Yes. So, so that's why I go back and forth. And that's what I think sometimes these discussions lose is that we don't have to do best and worst. We could do better than. No abortions would be best, but is no abortions after six months better than free-for-all abortions? Absolutely. Is putting some limits on abortion better than no limits at all? Absolutely. We always go to these extremes, but I feel like we live life a little bit more in the middle. How do we make these decisions? When should an abortion be okay? Again, is it when there's a heartbeat? Is it when it switches from embryo to fetus? Is it when the baby can live outside of the womb? I don't have the answer, but these are legitimate questions we can have if we're open to having discussions instead of just drawing our line in the sand and not moving and not listening and also vilifying the other side instead of listening to what they have to say. There are convincing arguments on both sides. I'm pretty much on the no abortion unless there's a medical reason. On the other hand, if someone's unable to provide a good home for the child, is it better off not to have the baby? On the other hand, adoption exists. And I do believe that if God allows the baby to be forming, that God has a reason for that child to be born. And who are we to not allow the next great medical researcher to live because the mother couldn't take care of them when they're young. On the other hand, the foster care system, I've heard, can be really lousy and kids growing up there can have a really tough time. And then, of course, there is the discussion of what about abortion in the case of a disability? In the form of a physical disability or Down syndrome, I would say no abortion because there are people who live totally full and beautiful lives who have a variety of disabilities. A sickness that is sure to take the person's life in the first three years, maybe that's reasonable. I don't know. I don't have the answers. So I hope you're not looking for them here because this is not about me giving answers. The only things that keep me more on the pro-life side, well, there are a variety of reasons, but I think the two biggest are, first of all, I think that as a society, the health of our society is indicated by how we treat those most vulnerable, whether that's the elderly or the young or the pre-born, or the destitute, or the homeless, or those with mental illness, whatever the most vulnerable are, I think how we treat them says a lot about the kind of people we are. Because in days of yore, when people were living in caves, you had to struggle to survive. And if someone wasn't strong enough to survive, you couldn't support them. And that was a way of living before, and it made sense. But now I think we've progressed past that. And if we can't take care of the most vulnerable, I, I feel like that doesn't say much about us and that's not the direction we should be heading in because that is a culture and a society that is ripe for just powerful and strong people to take charge. And I don't think that's safe. Also, if we choose what sort of life is worth living, 
we say we're like God. If we decide that abortion is okay because the mother won't be able to take care of the child and they'll live in some version of poverty, maybe there's a reason that person's supposed to be born into poverty. Maybe they will have more empathy for people who live that way and they will rise to create laws that will help people in poverty or teach people how not to be in debt. We don't know. We don't know why people face any of the challenges they do. And I would personally be very nervous about taking that godlike place and making these decisions. It's a tricky subject. And that's all I wanted to say about abortion is just, I don't think there's a clear cut answer. And I think it's okay that there's not a clear cut answer as long as we're open to having discussions, but we can't be open to having these discussions if we vilify people like Jodi Picot did in her book. And I hate to say that because she usually is so gentle with people of different opinions, but I think she missed the mark on this one. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. 1,000 downloads to go, hopefully 1,000 and then 1,000 and 1,000 more. I really appreciate you being here. And remember, always be a little kinder than necessary. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating and a review. And please share the podcast with anyone you think would benefit from some common sense and thoughtfulness. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at E Pluribus Unum Podcast. You can also find me on Locals at epluribusunumpodcast.locals.com. The intro and end music is Chopin's Etude, Opus 10, Number 1 in C Major, known as the Waterfall Etude.